0: Come on, we got Chad on the line. What do you want to ask him? You mentioned the capital raise part of being so important. What makes that difficult?
1: I think a couple of things. If you don't have a track record yet as a multifamily operator, that's one of the first things that investors look at. Is they look at, okay, who's this guy, right? What's Chad done? What's his experience? What are his mistakes been? How has he learned from them? How has he corrected and mitigated those going forward? And then has he went full cycle on a deal yet? I'm only a couple of years into this myself. So as you get into more sophisticated investors, they're gonna have more scrutiny on you as an operator. So that's again, why I think starting small, you're going to raise some friends and family who already trust you, that should be a little more palatable than, than going for a large one for a beginning.
2: Welcome to the Diary Department Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. We got two great guys on the line with us today. We got Chad Sheeler, our experienced investor, and Tamon Jack. And gentlemen, welcome to the show today.
0: Thank you. Hey, Good to be here. Thank you.
2: Yeah. So good having you guys talking before we hit the record button. It seems like, you know, we run around with the same crowd and we all have some common threads. So I think it's gonna be a really, really great conversation today. But Chad, you're gonna be up first. So do us a favor, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, thanks, Brian. So from Indiana, my whole life, born and raised, spent 17 years since I was 07 in the sales industry, a long time in that career. Um, mm-hmm. still own the business today. About five years ago, I decided I wanted to get into real estate and be a little more financially secure and provide more long-term growth for myself and my family. So that's how I started to get into multifamily at that point in time, just made that transition about five years ago. Yeah.
2: Now, what were some of the things that were going through your head? I mean, you own your own business, you're probably doing fairly well. I mean, what were some of the pain points you experienced that made you think, hey, I think this multifamily thing looks like a
1: great thing to do? Yeah. It's tough. You say it because I kind of had the golden handcuffs as some mm-hmm. people call it. I was making great money at the last job. It's is passive as residual. And, you know, some people would say, well, why would you ever leave that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm the kind of person where I wanted to have more ownership in my future and more security. So mm-hmm. I had to go through, it was a long couple of years period of time to make that transition to just still maintain that business, but also do research and learn about real estate. But mm-hmm. I did that really for the purpose of having controlled my future. And I saw there was no ceiling really on real estate mm-hmm. and it's, it could be a right way to build wealth.
2: Yeah. And it is. And that's one thing that I do appreciate about it, you know, is there is no ceiling, which is kind of fun. I remember uh, I was, active duty military and you have your pay charts that you can see and you can see exactly where the ceiling is at all points, you know. So that was always kind of depressing when I looked at it from I'll never make more than this amount a year. But so let's talk about that transition period. What what are some of the challenges you went, you know, transitioning from one business to getting into multifamily?
1: Well, whenever you have two businesses you're working on, it's very difficult to keep one going 100% mm-hmm. and still focus on learning a different business. So, I'm for probably for a year and a half, my wife would tell you this too, like I worked a lot. Like I yep. was to keep business going, to keep doing sales, learn about real estate, read books, mm-hmm. listen to podcasts. There was a lot of research involved. It was challenging, it was yeah you know, and I, I went through
2: something similar. I was, I mean, most people listening know my story, but I was active duty military working at the Pentagon when I decided to start building a real estate business. That's a conversation I had with my wife was I'm going to be really, really busy for the next couple of years. But, if everything works out, you're going to be able to live wherever you want. And that's where we're living right now is where she wants. So you have to keep your foot on both sides, right? So you have to keep on performing at your your job or your other business, but it's, it's a steep learning curve. So so let's talk about your first steps into multifamily, how that went and how you've grown from
1: there. Yeah. So it all started with a fourplex a couple of years ago. Prior to that, I was doing the, the normal look for a single family home, a duplex, a triplex. Mm-hmm. And decided that multifamily four units plus was going to be a great way to start for me. So about yep. that, got the bug right away, bought mm-hmm. a 15 unit, about six months later, bought a 20 unit, about four months later, and it just, it just snowballed from there.
2: Now, were all of these things that you purchased for yourself or were any of these syndications yet?
1: So the first three deals I did with my own money, I wanted Mm -hmm. to prove to myself I could do it with my own money before I risked investors' money, first of all. My fourth deal I did with two partners is a JV, no syndication. My fifth deal we closed on this past month was our first syndication with those two same partners as well. And then my last deal right now is just myself. All right. Nice.
2: Nice. That's definitely one route to take. And I talk to a lot of people about how to build their businesses or how to get into multifamily. And the route you went was one that that I recommend frequently is you start out buying something small, you use that as your launching pad, so to speak, to get into something slightly larger. But something I find very frequently with people who go that route is eventually they want to get into bigger and bigger properties. And that's when they land in syndication. So is that kind of how you saw it unfold is, you know, one, two, three properties by yourself, JV, so you can get something bigger and then syndicate?
1: Yep, it's kind of all worked exactly how I thought it would, which most things don't. But I did a few myself. I wanted to get some partners on board, leverage other people that had experience, mm-hmm. just uh, that were maybe complimentary skills to myself, and then get a syndication on my belt and kind of moving up the ladder as far as unit counts. And now I'm at the point where I'm looking at okay, 100 plus unit deals because I have mm-hmm. that experience now, and I've made the mistakes on the smaller deals, yep. so I can learn from those and apply it on the, the larger ones.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good way of of getting into it. And just like you said, the, the benefit to that is, you know, you cut your teeth on that four unit and then you get a slightly larger and you can build out your systems. You can build out your experience and your track record. So when you start getting into syndicating and bringing other people's money in, you have that track record already. I think, alternatively, the other way that that I recommend a lot is find somebody who's experienced and lean on them as well. But definitely a couple ways to do it. But yeah, I think the way you're doing it is is a great way to get started. So last one was a syndication. Talk about the difference in your experience between buying one by yourself, buying one as a JV and and the syndication. What was the biggest lesson learned or your biggest uh, friction point
1: doing that syndication? Man, it was a big learning curve, honestly. And Mm -hmm. if I hadn't been a part of the Michael Blanc mentoring program, I probably Mm -hmm. wouldn't have done it honestly because I didn't have anybody in my local network that really had done before to a large degree. My two partners had done maybe one in the past. I was the lead Mm -hmm. sponsor on that deal. I took everything from finding the deal to kind of, I was the the point man on the ship here, guiding us the whole process of the transaction. And then, you know, post close, I have a role as well. But I would say my pain point in this one, I mean, there's probably a couple.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: you, you got to watch what partners you have. And this may be a topic later on in the call here. But you know, watch the partners you have and make sure you have aligned interests and, mm-hmm. and make sure that everyone has their own lane to stay in, they have their own roles, and that you don't overlap in your skill sets. That's one. Number two, make sure, I think whoever you have in charge of capital raise, yeah. make sure they can sufficiently raise that capital in the right, right amount of time and not get to the closing table. And now you're 300K short, you got a big gap to bridge and then you, <laughs> so that- so, sounds too.
2: like you guys came up about 300K <laughs> short, you know, is that is that yeah. what really happened?
1: Actually 400K, Ooh, yeah. yeah. We were 400K short on the raise. We had to have $210,000 to bridge the gap Mm -hmm. the deal closed on December 28th. So our investors could get their depreciation Mm -hmm. last year. So I had to come to the table and make a personal loan to the entity for $220K. Just get the deal done. So it was worth it. But yeah, it it was tough. Uh, But I learned a ton in the process. The the mentoring team, my coaches were amazing help, Mm -hmm. many calls with the attorneys involved. It was awesome.
2: Yeah. And having a good team around you is a great way to go. Something I've realized a lot lately is just the value of coaches, the value of having mentors, people who've done what you want to do before and leveraging their experience to do more. And it sounds like exactly what you did. You learn so much
1: faster by leveraging a professional. You yeah. know How much time will it take you to research it and figure out on your own how many mm-hmm. mistakes will you make? versus yeah. paying for a, for a coach.
2: Absolutely. You know, and I've started talking with a lot of people who are at, uh, you know, higher levels and it, it seems like the trend is most of them have some sort of coach, you know, whether it's a, you know, a personal coach or a business coach, you know, most people who are operating at high levels have somebody there to help keep them focused and help keep them on the the straight and narrow, so to speak. So, well, cool. So, let's go a little bit more into this last syndication a little bit. We, we always focus on one deal, but let's talk a little bit more in, in detail. Talk about the syndication, talk about coming up a little short. Let's just dive in a little more on the the details. You know, where, where was it? What size property? And tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah. So, it was a property in a, I would call it a tertiary market, submarket, mm-hmm. Great blue collar area in Indiana mm-hmm. here. About an hour and a half from where i live and not a lot of population growth potential in the area but mm-hmm. no new units being built so definitely a need for housing this deal was on the market for 3.6 million back in june of mm-hmm. last year and nothing happened to it I had a couple buyers fall through a broker who i knew previously he came to me and said hey look the sellers want to take an offer lower than our whisper price at 3 million are you interested mm-hmm. and i'm thinking that's almost a 20% dis- discount. So let's take a look at it. Yeah. Took a look at it. Turned out it was a great deal. So it was 67 units in this uh, smaller town. It took us about 90 days to close on it. We actually mm-hmm. had a lender kind of fall through in the first 30 days. We had to change the lenders pretty quickly there. Yep. So I had it had some lessons learned there too. Mm-hmm.
2: that seems to be like the name of the game recently is is lenders uh with the interest rate environment the lending environment you know I've had a couple of lenders back out one of them killed a deal you know about this time last year it was a little later uh, like March April last year one of the lenders we had backed out and ended up killing the deal but it happens and it's something that uh, you need to flex from so when did you say you closed on this one or did you
1: December 28th.
2: December 28th. That's right. Yep. Just, to, just to get the depreciation for the year. That's right. I remember you talking yes. about that. Yep. Yeah. Last year was the first year in, in a while that I haven't had a December closing. So we had a oh, December wow. closing in 2019, 2020, and 2021, and almost always the last week of the year same thing you know trying to make sure we're getting the depreciation for the investors for the year and you hustle to get something to the finish line but probably also dealing with you know bankers that uh, you know are out of town and brokers that are mm-hmm. on vacation it's uh, hard time to close but uh, a lot of people end up doing it it was we got it done though mm-hmm. well cool cool well now we'll transition and we'll talk about you know what I like to call the big burning why you know your motivation uh, what would you say your big burning why is?
1: My third why, as I mentioned originally, was really my desire to have financial freedom for myself mm-hmm. and my family. I know a lot of people have a why that's maybe has more philosophical or charitable uh, driven. I wouldn't say that that's my driving why. My driving why is really to support my family and, mm-hmm. and to create something that's better than myself. I do see a big value to create excellent housing for tenants and to give them mm-hmm. a better place to live. I do see a big value in that. It's a big need for that right now in the marketplace. But yeah, my why would just be to have more control of my future and have more freedom.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah. I love that. Control of your future. And this is really a business to to help you do that. All right. So, last thing I'm going to ask before we bring to Mondon,
1: what's next for you? Well, this year, uh, our goal is to acquire either 300 units and mm-hmm. multifamily or about $17 million in value. And mm-hmm. next, so it might be a couple of deals, might be three deals. So, that is our focus this year.
2: Okay. So $17 million—that's that's a good number. Three deals, $17 million. Where specifically are you guys looking?
1: So Indianapolis, MSA uh, mostly. Uh, we're also exploring markets like Cincinnati, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, and Louisville, mm-hmm. Kentucky.
2: Okay. I was in Louisville last weekend. So yeah. So it's a good city. It is. Yeah.
1: Good city. Good city.
2: Well, cool. Well, we'll, we'll shift gears now and bring Tamand on. So Tamand, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Happy to have you here. So, do us a favor and tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, I'm originally from Texas, but I've been in the Atlanta area for 27 years now. I came out here for college. <laughs> And after I graduated college, I went to work, did the corporate thing for a couple of years, but then I stumbled across uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So that kind of sparked the interest in me to start investing. Mm-hmm. I started buying rentals and doing some flips and that was going pretty well. So mm-hmm. I made the venture to go out full time, but that was a couple of years before the the market meltdown in 2008. So mm. when the market crashed, unfortunately, I crashed right along with it. Yeah and i went back to corporate i was working Mm -hmm. for a hotel company Mm -hmm. and i wanted to get into hotel development so i also went back to grad school got my mba with a focus Mm -hmm. on real estate to kind of help spur that venture into hotel development Mm -hmm. but upon graduating i had an opportunity to work with a real estate firm that was about to embark on servicing the private equity firms that were buying foreclosures Mm-hmm. At that time, this was 2012 for pleasures were hot and heavy. Yep. So I got involved with that. I went over to that firm. We we're more like a startup. So mm-hmm. I was leading the acquisitions group. Did that for just under two years where we were mm-hmm. buying anywhere from 150 to 300 houses a month in the Atlanta mm-hmm. and Florida markets. Wow. So it was, it was crazy busy working crazy hours. And I also had the opportunity at the same time lead the property management side of that business for about a year because mm-hmm. uh, we were managing the properties for these firms also. So we had about 3,000 single-family properties under kind of management at the time. So mm-hmm. 3,000 multifamily is definitely different than 3,000 single-family. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, there's a big logistics challenge there. Oh, but yeah. I, I learned a lot. It was a good experience. And then I went back out on my own again and mm-hmm. I started stayed in the single family, although multifamily was always a goal of mine when I first started investing, but I just went back into single family yeah. and mainly because I was coming out of that industry there and just mm-hmm. stayed in, it try to got of leverage that experience. And that's what I've been doing up until this point was uh, yeah. buying, flipping single family properties, have a small rental portfolio. So uh, I have a couple of Airbnb properties. So that, mm-hmm. that kind of sums up where I am today. So you have considerable experience in, in single family,
2: and when I say considerable, I mean managing a three thousand unit portfolio. I'd love to talk to you, like in, in two years, when you have three thousand multifamily under your belt, and we, can, <laughs> we we can compare, you know, the the difference between managing. So, I think you're right. You know, ma- managing three thousand single family homes with three thousand addresses, you know, I think you'll find that you know managing three thousand multifamily units with maybe ten different addresses are going to be a lot uh, a lot more manageable.
0: Yes,
1: for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, that said, you know, I always talk about to people about their why, because I think it's so important, you know, why the change for you and what is your big why?
0: So the big change for me is really when I first started investing, I always had the goal of financial literacy to be able to provide mm-hmm. some financial literacy mainly to the minority community. So there's a big gap in wealth creation among the minority communities. And, yes. and the main reason is a lot of folks in the communities just don't invest and they, they don't have the knowledge or see anybody that does it, you yeah. know, so or have the access to these deals. So that's kind of one of the big things I wanted to to do and, and I can wrap that around my multifamily business you know bringing people in to invest in these deals educating them on syndications and being able to invest so that's that one but also a big thing for me was you know i, I was born with a with a birth defect that created a limb difference of my left mm-hmm. hand mm-hmm. so i went i went through an experience i uh, had several surgeries the whole goal was to get a prosthetic and get mm-hmm. the prosthesis and unfortunately you know at the end of the day, they told me there was nothing they can do for me, even after going through those surgeries for that, for that reason. My underlying goal for my business is really to help kids to never go through what I went through, mm-hmm. be able to provide kids with a limb difference, mm-hmm. a pro, you know, a way to get a prosthetic. So, you know, they can just live their life to their, their fullest potential. So yeah. that's, that's really my, my big reason for doing what I'm doing, uh, plan to donate a portion of the, of the yeah. profits from the syndication business to kids who are in need of prosthetics. I love
2: it. I love it. Well, we'll do our our best, you know, in the next, you know, twenty, twenty minutes or so to
0: see if we can push that along. And so here we go. Come on, we got Chad on the line. What do you want to ask him? So Chad, you know, one of the big things that's getting into the syndication business is being new at this. What would you advise someone new to avoid, like some of the mistakes that you see in syndication?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I would say two of the Mistakes to avoid, I think the number one mistake would be probably don't be too aggressive in your underwriting. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of operators are going to kind of fall on their face, maybe later this year, or next year, ones that were just writing, underwriting just way too high of rent and growth projections for you know year two, and year three. I would say that would be one, and don't underestimate the, the value and need for a great management company. Like that is literally the glue that you need. That is the That is the most important part of this whole equation. Without that company in place, you may not meet your business plan, and that's what your investors are relying on.
2: I would say, yeah. you know, to add add to that, especially for new syndicators, and, and Chad already mentioned it. And we was talking about a story is the capital raise. You know, don't don't underestimate how difficult it is to raise capital. If you've never raised capital before you know, getting to, to raise one or 2 million for something tends to be more difficult than a lot of people think it is. So I, I would say, you know, there's no harm starting out on smaller syndications and using that to get experience to get into the larger ones. So I'd say start small to go big. Some people yeah. attempt to start, start out too large.
1: Yeah. I agree with that too. I would say if you focus on, you know, a, a 20 to, to 50 unit, like Brian did first first one, I think that would be a great start. That way, you, you can kind of prove to yourself as well. You can raise the capital, you can build your investor database, your leads this, that, during that time. If you try and target something that's 100 plus units for your first one, not only will you be faced with a large capital raise, but also there's a lot more competition in that yeah. area too. You're going to be fighting with a lot of investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you get this kind of a sweet spot in the 20 to 80 unit, I feel like, where there's not yeah. a ton of competition in that area. It
0: would be a great way to start. You mentioned the capital raise part of being so important. What makes that difficult, you know, raising the capital and getting it done? I think a couple of things. If you don't have a track record yet as a multifamily
1: operator, that's one of the first things that investors look at. They look at, OK, who's this guy, right? What's Chad done? What's his experience? What are his mistakes been? How has he learned from them? How has he corrected and mitigated those going forward? And then has he went full cycle on a deal yet? I'm only a couple of years into this myself. So as you get into more sophisticated investors, they're going to have more scrutiny on you as an operator. So that's, again, why I think starting small, you're some friends and family, who already trust you. That should be a little more palatable than, than going for a large one for the beginning. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's- and it's something I mean, a lot of people leverage their professional you know, try, try to leverage their, their professional experience, you know, in or whatever, you know, it was kind of like Chad said, you know, I found that a lot of people, when I started telling them about real estate and what I was doing, the biggest hump I had to get over is how they perceived me, how they viewed me. Nobody saw me as Brian, the multifamily guy, Brian, the person yeah. that, you know, is going to be, you know, a really good steward of my money because I hadn't done anything similar. I had single family homes that were my own and a lot of people knew about that, but, you know the transition for me was and the difficult part for me raising capital is people didn't see me as Brian the apartment investor. I think they do now, but you know four or five years ago when I started, nobody did. and that that was my biggest challenge.
1: It takes some time too. Like that's why you want to start as soon as possible getting the word out that you're doing this. So it gives people kind of time to simmer and just kind of let let marinate and they can see your progress. You might have a session today with an investor or lead, and he may' not do a deal with you for another year if he's going to watch your whole progress. Yeah. And it's better to
0: start now and get that word out than trying to wait a year from now yeah, so getting the word out I mean that kind of builds into building your brand mm-hmm. um what do you do to help build your brand as a new syndicator with no deals in place what are what are some advice can you give to help build that brand?
1: Well, I'm actually reading this book right now that I was given from Jonathan. You may already know about it. And I'm pulling up right now. It's by Hunter Thompson and raising capital for real estate. And right now I'm on chapter six, uh, like minute four. And it's got just a great way to get started here to get the word out. And it just talks, it walks you through how to compile a simple email to your mm-hmm. contacts, no ask at all in here. It's just, yeah. hey, let them know what you're doing. Let me know if you want to be involved in an upcoming yeah. deal. Very, very low pressure. So the important thing here is that people know now that you're doing real estate. That's the important thing. Yeah. Yes.
2: You know, and that that is a great book, by the way. I think that's probably the best resource out there that's, you know, under 20 bucks for, for somebody to, uh, to learn how to raise capital. But, you know, if I could just generalize it, you know, I, I would say you, you got to sit down and do a little bit of thinking about, you know, who your target audience is. And then figure out the best way to get you and your message in front of your target audience, right? So it's a little bit different for everybody. Now, in what Chad was just saying is you start with the people you know, and you start with like an email campaign or a texting campaign or a phone campaign where you tell everybody what you're doing and make it as natural as possible. You know, a catch-up email. Hey, you know, John, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, what's going on? How's the family? Well, here's what I'm doing. You know, make it as natural as possible to introduce people to the subject. I think that's a great way of doing it. But yeah, next steps are basically, you know, who's your target audience? Who are you trying to reach? And what's the best way to get your message in front of them? And what's the best message to put in front of them? I think, I think that's really the crux of it is if you can answer those three questions, you'll be fairly successful at, you know, attracting investors.
0: One last question here. So, you mentioned your team was important in, in getting the last deal done and, and make sure you have someone on your team that can raise all they say they can raise. So what actually makes a good GP team?
1: I think that what makes a GP team a great team is having everyone on board in the same direction with the same aligned interests and goals. Number one, you would, you would want to have somebody who's not as dedicated to this as you are, not able to spend as time to this as you are. I also feel like having complementary skill sets of your partners is so important. Like if if you're if you're let's say a visionary, and so is your partner. You know, if you you ever read the Geno Wickman books, Traction. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to have complementary skill sets to so you can both accomplish something great as a team. That's one suggestion I would say. But I think great communication, trust, separation of the roles, and accountability. That's definitely what's important here. Yeah,
2: going going back to the Geno Wickman. I think your core values have to align, you know, and that's, okay. that's something that end of the day, some of the other stuff can slide, but if your core values don't align, you know, people are going to be tugging at different directions. If something's much more important to me than it is to you and vice versa, eventually that's going to be very apparent and it's going to create, create a rift. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely
0: agree with that. Well, I do have one other question, I guess, when you're in between deals, mm-hmm. how, how are you keeping your your investors involved and engaged in, in what you're doing. And mm-hmm. uh, so when you have another deal come up, you're not just coming out of the blue, like, Hey, I got another deal. So
1: That's a great question. And this is the one that I, I wasn't sure if I was going to answer give you a great answer to. So I'm still newer at raising capital cause I, my first year is by myself. Right. So I'm still building the system out and really for me right now, my method is a monthly newsletter, which will start in this month to go to all my leads and contacts that they're, they're already on my, my platform. And then really just as it speaks to people on a regular basis, just a a phone call or a text here and there. I don't have a fixed system for that at all. It's just more of the monthly newsletter to go out each month with maybe four different bullet points of what I'm doing, what's happening in the market right now, that kind of stuff.
2: You know, some something that I've learned about the the capital raise is definitely the follow up. You know, so if, if you talk with somebody that's interested in investing in apartments and you don't have a deal, three, four, five months goes by. You know, the the more time that goes by, the less and less likely they are to to invest with you. So I I would suggest getting a, a CRM that or or some way where you can manage your flows and your processes and just just have like some periodic check ins. You know, so. I, I use Active Campaign, and there's some tasks in Active Campaign, and you can set timelines. And you know, a lot of times after my first call, I think a, a follow-up's warranted in the next couple of weeks. You know, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll put a little task in Active Campaign, you know, follow up, and you know, try to send them an email or a text that's that's not the. I think people know when they're getting a, you know, an email that's going out to a large distro list, but something that's a little more personal to them but it's, it's all in the follow-up and it's it's in the relationship and you need to build that relationship for them to be able to invest with you. So, um, mm-hmm. it's, and that's something that, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. You know, I've, I, I've had periods where I was really good with the follow-up and, and not so great. Um, but when I go back and look at, you know, the investors that I brought into various deals, um, in most cases, the ones that have invested with me, were the ones that I had had a very recent, you know, engagement, you know. So, yeah, the the longer the longer it goes between conversations, the less likely it is. So, keep that engagement up whether it's an email, whether it's a text, whether it's a phone call, you know. Um, you know, a lot of people who are really crushing the investor management scene are following up just like that. They they have a certain amount of every day I'm going to reach out to four different investors, they have it organized, they have it set up. And you know, every day they're going to send four texts or or four phone calls out um, to to people on their investor list to keep that uh, keep that active. So, lots of ways to do it. Um, you know, but I, I would say you know some of the automations automations are good. Your drip campaigns are good, um, but personal contact is better.
0: But, yeah, that's uh, kind of one of the challenges I'm having right now is. Mm-hmm. Talking to people about capital raising, what we're doing and doing the capital raise part, you know, I have friends and family who are interested, but, you know, also, it's I don't know when I'm going to get a deal, you know, yeah. especially being new in it. Uh, you know, it's going to take some time. so trying to keep them engaged in what I'm doing is kind of been a challenge for me. So, uh, but, you know, I guess luckily they are friends and family and know that I'm an investor and have been investing for years. Yeah. So they may hang around. I don't know. Yeah. And along those
2: lines, I mean, the, they're, they're going to, you know, a lot of people don't want to keep their, their cash idle. So yeah. um the, the hard part that I've found is, you know, somebody might be really excited to invest with me today. And if I don't have a deal for them in the next, you know, two months, they may put that money to use somewhere else where it may not be as liquid as, as they need it to, to invest with me. You know, if they're interested in real estate, they might buy their own single family house, or, you know, maybe they invest it with another syndicator, but there's, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of things there. And the end of the day, um, I'd say just take a, take a long-term approach with people, you know, a very long-term approach and always look at uh, no is no for now and not no forever. You know, I've, I've had a lot of people that uh, have passed on a first couple of deals that have ended up investing in in later deals. So yeah, think long-term with the relationships
1: and, you know, build good relationships. So. Well, Brian, I would use that that application, even on, on getting deals too. You said, you mentioned that it's not no today or it's not, not no forever. I can't count. There's probably two or three deals I've done so far to where I, I was outbid originally. Mm -hmm. And then the next, the buyer falls through and they come around and I get the deal at a discount. Mm -hmm. So apply there as well. I keep making offers because even though they say no, maybe at first, if you're the second runner up, that's the best place to be in besides winning at the very beginning. Because it might come back to you.
2: Yeah, that's true too. And I, I've seen I've seen properties on the rebound. We've gotten a second crack at a lot of properties. You know, right now, just off the top of my head, I can't think of one that we we ended up getting up under contract. But we've definitely seen cop- properties come back to market, and and been able to take take a second look at them. A lot of it's organization. You know, making sure you have, uh, and whether you're dealing with the brokers or whether you're dealing with the investors. You know, I think there needs to be some sort of of process you stick people into. Where, you know, first phone call with somebody whether it's a new investor, you know, first time you're talking with somebody about investing, you know, I would make that your first investor call, you know, whether it's somebody you've known for 20 years or somebody, you know, that you, you just met, but you have to have a process for following up, you know, whether it's a, a once a month text or a once a month or a once a quarter phone call or something like that. You have to have a process and you have to follow it. And if you can systematize that, it it makes it a lot easier. It's a lot easier to send, you know, one or two texts a day than it is to get to, you know, middle of the year and say, crap, I've got to reach out to everybody on my investor list. Yeah. I've got 623 texts to send today. Not going to (laughs) work, right? So, Well, cool, guys. We're about out of time. So one last question for each of you. Chad, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you?
1: Yeah, I'd say our website is probably the easiest. Uh, our company is called Focus Capital. Our website is uh, investfocused, uh, plural,
0: investfocused.com. All right. And Taman, same question for you. Yeah, you can check out our, our website. Also, the name of my, my company is SHH Equity Group. So that's SHHequitygroup.com. You can go there. Also, LinkedIn, catch me on LinkedIn and Instagram under Tamon Jack, just my name. All right. Awesome. So we'll put, uh, we'll put links in there in the show
2: notes to your, your LinkedIn profiles and your websites and Instagram, your social media profiles. That's what I'll just say. Your social media profiles and your, uh, (laughs) your websites. Thanks so much for coming on the, uh, the show today. Appreciate you guys. And, you know, hopefully you guys crush it in 2023.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Brian. See you tomorrow.
2: All right. Appreciate it, chat. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.